and we're plugged in with Maura Collins. And I am joined today by an amazing friend of mine, the inspirational Dr. Basha Jordan. Hi, glad Hi, to Dr. be here. Dr. Jordan. Glad to be here today. How are you? I'm excellent. I'm excited about being on your broadcast, which I think is excellent, and I know that you will go far. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate you coming on the show. I appreciate you inviting me. So I met you a couple years ago mm-hmm. when I was new to the Tampa Bay area and the fellowship and whatnot, and um, oh, you just inspired me, and I started following you on Facebook, watching your videos that you post all the time, and then I loved watching um, when you were at church, like fellowshipping with the church, being inspirational that way. And then you asked me to come on your show, um, and you interviewed speaks. me, the Hope Doctor. Right. You are the Hope Doctor. That's correct. So how'd you come up with that? Well, one day I was in my meditation, and... Um, the name of my ministry is Hope Alive Outreach. And so it just came to me one day. Uh, I think I was talking to my son on the, on the phone. And uh, it just came to me. You know, I was, I have a slogan that I originated in Baltimore uh, because even though I'm a pastor, I was also in the street with the people. I, I believe that uh, we need to go out where the people are and uh, there were a lot of drug dealers in the neighborhood and a lot of drugs around the church. And so when I would go out to minister to the people who are out there using drugs, I would say, uh, treat me like the dope man, only call me the hope man. Wow, I love it. Right. And so the dope man always gets respect. Okay. You, don't, you don't argue with a man who's selling you drugs if you want to get served. Mm. And so I take the same concept in the arena of outreach to giving people hope. If you want what I have to offer, then you're gonna to have to make some effort and treat me with respect. And do what you do, right? Pardon me? And do what you do, like follow well, your way through <clears throat> recovery and the yes. way you lead your life outside of 12-step program, the way you're plugged in, I've noticed, with your outreach, with the way you've affected me in my recovery over the past couple of years, you are one of the pillars of, you know, my recovery network, which is, you know, primarily women, but there are some men that I do look up to that my predecessors that show, you know, me the way and uh, the message of hope. How long have you been in recovery? Since October the 13th, 1988. 1988. Right, so this coming uh, October will be 33 years. That's longer than you are old. I wish. I was. <laughs> I graduated high school in 1992, so it's right before okay. I went into high school. So were you in Mar- Maryland at that time? In, in Maryland, Baltimore? yes. Yes. Wow. So your surrender to the disease, was that something you voluntarily did, or was it a court kind of guided you through or how did you come into you know the recovery program well as we know in the second step it says um, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity mm-hmm. so when I was using I was insane and didn't know it and being a pastor and using a drink and a drug um, 
and being in the inner city and pastoring a medium-sized church in the inner city, well-respected in the community, um, having drug vigils and marches and that sort of thing to get the young people off of drugs and to educate them about drugs, to have the police department coming in and showing displays of different types of drugs and to influence young people um, away from drugs. Uh, seeing that I'm, <clears throat> I'm there, but I'm high. So <laughs> um, living a dual life, mm. I didn't realize that I was really addicted. Um, and um, I was married for seven years before my wife found out that I was using uh, drugs. And once she found out that I was using drugs, she proceeded to <laughs> encourage me in her way uh, to get some help. And um, I went into an outpatient program for, um, I'd say maybe a month and a half, two months, not really following directions and um, because I didn't think that I'd really needed it. And plus being a pastor, I didn't want the word to get out that I was a drug addict. Right. And, and so I, I had told my wife that if she told anybody especially if she took, went to the officials the high, uh, in the church, uh, the bishop, I told her that I would kill her if she did that. And um, <clears throat> that put a wedge in our marriage, but at the same time, my wife stayed with me. But she was working behind the scenes, and on October the 13th, 1988, there was an intervention in my life. Um, <clears throat> I was, we, I just bought this farm, and uh, I had this horse that I was going to bring home. And so I'm in the process of having a, uh, this gentleman was going to put fencing up around. And I'm sitting at my table. It was a Friday, Friday morning at 9 o'clock, sitting at my, my kitchen table talking to him about putting up some fencing. And there was, there was a knock at the door. And uh, I, I went to open the door, and there was my, my sister and my mother, and as I opened the door, I said, well, why are you all here? And then I looked behind them, and there was my mother-in-law, and I was going to an Episcopal priest, counselor, and there he was, and, and then there was my best friend, and then there were two officials from the church, and, uh, Long story short, these, it was an intervention in my life that, that, that day, and uh, I went into treatment. Mm -hmm. And when I went into treatment, my eyes were open first or second day there, mm -hmm. when I realized that I had a disease. And um, I was glad that I was not what I thought I was. Right. So that's how I ended, ended up going into treatment and getting into recovery and finding out, out about all the nuances of drug and alcohol addiction. Uh, I, I use drug and alcohol, drugs and alcohol in the same context, in the same sentence, because in our society, um, there is some diversification in, in them. However, I learned in the program, 12-step program, that alcohol is a drug. Right, And Amen. many people have been confused about that, and I was mm -hmm. confused about that. 
because at the end of my addiction, <clears throat> um, it, it was October the 13th when I got went into treatment, but for the past month, um, I had stopped using cocaine and, and was just drinking because I didn't realize the devastation, the addictive qualities of alcohol. Uh, so that, that's how I started uh, in, in, in recovery. That's a very inspiring background because I've been off narcotics for 13 years and I had a brief re relapse a little over two years ago and it was on alcohol for a sh couple of months and it scared me. Like I, I could see that it became a drug. I thought I could use that socially and I was scared that it was gonna get worse and I was gonna find drugs and then I'd lose my son and everything else and I didn't want that to happen. So I just went back to a meeting and I started over again and I was honest. So this intervention and your education of the disease and you know in in late 80s early 90s like the war on drugs was a big thing and you know were you pretty acceptable to go into the public and work outreach because like you mentioned that's the most important thing what we do outside to stay plugged in outside of 12 steps how was that accepted? Was it accepted with open arms because you were a member of the clergy and there's anonymity and whatnot? I mean, was it you just all of a sudden said, you know what, I'm going to help other people and I'm okay with being an addict? Well, in 1988, uh, AIDS was also prevalent right. in the community. And so um, many people were dying from AIDS. And when I went away for 30 days, no one knew in the church. They didn't know where I was, and so and so the rumor was that I that I had AIDS. Uh, they didn't know that I was in a drug treatment facility, and so <clears throat> uh, whenever I minister, whenever I'm talking like this, I try to um, intertwine and 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 in my conversation recovery. Um, knowledge is power. Everyone, a lot of people have heard that statement, but I have something that I have added to that. Knowledge is power if you use it. Um, and so what happened was I was almost like an outcast in my church. When It's important to work the steps in the order in which they are given. And I have learned that through my own mistakes. Because when I came out of treatment, I wanted the people to know where I had been and let them know that I had been using for 30 years of my life. And I had been pastoring that church for five years, doing a lot in the community, bringing people into the church, you know, having a good name with the young people. And so, um, when I got out of treatment that, that particular day, I got out of treatment, there was a, a, a counselor who told me that I needed a sponsor. And so the next day, I met up with his sponsor, who became my sponsor. And um, it was on a Friday. 
And I told him that I wanted to meet with my church, the congregation, to tell them where I'd been and what I'd been doing. And uh, I didn't really know the importance of listening to a sponsor. And so I ignored him and called a meeting of the church. Of the church. And so here I had all these people in there, the choir, and they're all, they're all there. And I stood up and, and did, a fourth, did a fifth step with them. And I devastated them. And they didn't know how to handle it. They couldn't handle it. Because I had done a, a total one, 180 on them. And so uh, the backlash that I had to receive from the congregation was horrific. Uh, but fortunately, I was able to stand up where I fell. So I stayed at that church uh, for another three years. And during that, that period, I was able to, since I was in a 12-step program, uh, it's, a matter, it's, a, it's amazing. And I have it in my book, but uh, this book entitled The Pipe and the Pulpit, which I, it took me 25 years to write this book because there's some things that I have in this book that uh, I was kind of skeptical about putting in there. However, I believe that that these incidents will be helpful to individuals who read it because it's it's real, or as my son would say, it's for real, for real, for um, real, for real, for real, for real. Yes. Right. So for me to be a pastor, known throughout the city, um, and now known for to be an addict. Um, God allowed me to use that as a stepping stone. Right, or a sounding board. Yes, to do different things. And so now uh, other people were coming to, into the church. Uh, I was ministering to, to um, people's sons and daughters who were in the church. And one of the things that I found out, and that is when, when an individual is is an addict or an alcoholic, and they are confronted with with someone who is a recovering alco alcoholic or an addict, an individual who has some influence, and I try to share it with them. The persons in the church who gave me the most hell were individuals who were closet addicts and alcoholics themselves. Um, so we we I started. Um, getting the um, the help of other recovering addicts in 12-step programs and doing some um, miraculous things, some unheard of things in the community. Um, <clears throat> I had a drug march where I had a, a friend of mine who was a mortician um, who was also in recovery and I had him to loan us his hearse uh, and, a, and, a, and an empty coffin that we had leading the march. And uh, we had some Cadillacs to um, where individuals' mothers who had lost children, they were riding in the Cadillacs behind the hearse. And when we went through the neighborhood, we would stop on the corner. 
I mean, if you could imagine 150 addicts in a march uh, with signs and that sort of thing and stopping on the corner, taking the coffin out of the hearse, setting it on the corner and opening it up, all right, and ministering to people and telling them if they knew of someone who was addicted or someone who had died on this corner, we had people giving out pieces of paper and a pencil and write their name on a piece of paper and put it in the coffin. Then I would have, I had other ministers to come and pray. And then we close the coffin up, put it back in the, in the, in the hearse and go around the, around the corner. So the marches got to be so popular, I ended up having the president of city council and the mayor of the city marching with me. Wow. So, um, then God gave me a vision to have a radio broadcast on the number one station in the nation, Heaven 600, um, iHeart radio station in Baltimore, where I started a recovery broadcast uh, in 1991. And we've been on now for 30 years. And so I had people calling me from all, all over, even though I'm in here in St. Petersburg, ministering to them. Um, Mothers, grandmothers, fathers, brothers and sisters are horrified when they find out that their loved one is addicted, especially if they have been incarcerated or if they've been in a, a terrible situation. And people will come to me because number one, I'm a pastor and number two, they know that I understand what's going on. Uh, so I've made that my life's ministry, my life's outreach. Uh, the name of our, <clears throat> the name of it is Hope Alive Outreach. I use outreach rather than ministry because I don't have a church per se. And people, people, I kind of like slip it, slip ministry on it by calling it an outreach. But people really want to be ministered to. Uh, but there are a lot of people out there who have been disconnected from the church or have been hurt by the church. And so I use the word outreach um, you know, I, I believe that, that God gives us certain means and ways of helping people that may not be ordinary. They will be extraordinary, but it will be a means to reach that particular individual. And so I'll use any means necessary to help an individual who's suffering. And, and, and I don't know who's listening to this broadcast, but if there are professionals listening to this broadcast who are closet addicts or alcoholics, and they put on one face on their job and another face when they're at the bar, and another face when they're, when they're getting high with other addicts, they are suffering in silence. And by me having suffered in silence, being a pastor, couldn't control my drinking, couldn't control my use of drugs, and couldn't talk to anybody about it, now I know that there's something worse than dying. 
which is wanting to die, but you can't. And God wouldn't let me die. Uh, toward the end, I was putting myself in situations where, and being in Baltimore, I mean, Baltimore has got a lot of homicides. Right. And so I was putting, at the end, I was putting myself in situations where I should have been killed. I should have died. I'm so glad you didn't. And that message of hope you just gave is a great hope shot. And I think that we need to have a second or third episode to talk a little bit more about some other topics that I would love to talk to you about if you would come back on the show. Would you be willing? Sure, yeah. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Dr. Jordan. Okay. You're the best. All right. God bless you. Thank you so much. Thanks.